If you have a Bible, I encourage you please to turn with me in Mark's Gospel where we have been reading in, in recent weeks. We we're, we're just got to, to the end of, of chapter, chapter 9. We're going to read today from Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Uh, your page numbering in the Pew Bibles is 1013, 1013. It's a rather graphic section of, of Scripture, very challenging to, to read. And hopefully as we, we read this together that we will know the Lord speaking to us. So let's hear God's word. Chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And may the Lord add his blessing upon his truth. I can't read a passage like that or the similar passages where Jesus says the same things that are recorded by, by other gospel writers without thinking of a, a true story. Maybe you can remember it. It's about a guy called David Wyman uh, about 30 years ago, or exactly 30 years ago. It was 1993. And he was out in Pennsylvania cutting trees. And he was out doing this by himself in a very remote corner. And while he was cutting trees, one of those trees fell on his leg, smashed his leg and pinned him, uh, at least pinned one of his legs to the ground. He, he lay there and he was shouting and hollering for an hour. And he was quickly coming to the realization that no one is going to hear him, no one is going to, to come and help him, and that if he was going to stay where he was, that he would die where he was pinned to the ground. So he made that choice, which was quite a re remarkable choice of what he was going to do. He was able to reach uh, to the, one of the, his, his boots and take the leather strap out, out of his boot, and then he made a bit of a tourniquet uh, around his leg. And then with his pen knife, he cut uh, his lower leg off six inches below the knee. Um, then he crawled 30 yards to his bulldozer. And then he drove the bulldozer about a quarter of a mile to where his truck was left. Uh, his truck, uh, unusually in America, was a manual truck. And to get it going, he was obviously having to use a, a clutch and gears and things like that. So with his good leg and with an arm, 
he was able then to get the car or the, get the truck started where he drove to the nearest farmhouse that he could find and he shouted for the farmer to come out and to take him to hospital and he survived. Uh, that's quite a remarkable story, quite literal of course, but cutting it off and we turn to this passage where Jesus is talking uh, about cutting off limbs. And when Jesus is doing that, I, I don't believe that Jesus is literally calling us to, to cut off limbs that, that cause us uh, or lead us into sin. But what Jesus is certainly doing is that Jesus is making a very graphic point about the seriousness of dealing with sin in our lives. The things that we do, the things that we see, the, the places that we may go. And, and that Jesus is able to make a very graphic point here. And I don't believe, honestly, that we see it as seriously as Jesus sees it. So for just a few moments now, we're going to reflect upon what we actually do. What we do with our bodies, what we do with our eyes, what we do with, with, with our minds and, and what we do with our, our, our whole being. And I do think that we have imbibed the, the attitude of the wider world, wider society, which would say something like, if it needs to be called sin, then surely it is only sin with a small s, because sin is not really a big deal. And we don't, nearly, we don't really need to get worried about sin. But what Jesus is saying here, there's something very different that is coming out of this passage. And indeed, our secular society will tell us that if there's anything that we should be getting worked up about, the things that we should be getting worked up about are things like climate change, world peace. And these are the issues we're told repeatedly that we should be getting worked up about. And yet if we think, why should we get worked up about those things? And it is right that we should get worked up about world peace and climate change and, and things like that because they are important issues. And the reason that they are important is because they are not abstract. They're not abstract discussions talking about climate change. But the reason things like climate change are important is because they affect human beings. It affects the future of the world. It affects future generations. It affects real people. And real people are affected by these things. And that's why they are important. And then if we're going to the scriptures, is that why human beings are really important and why we should be uh, worried about what happens to human beings is that human beings and what sets human beings as apart from the whole rest of creation is that human beings have this capacity to worship God. That's what's different about us. And human beings have this capacity to worship God endlessly, even beyond the point at which we will die. Even when our, our, our bodies are, are no longer with us, as it were, this side of eternity is that we will live on and we have the capacity to worship God forever. And so the reality of what the scriptures would teach is that either you will worship God endlessly in heaven or you will live on 
endlessly defying God in hell. So those are, are the two options that certainly that, that Jesus is talking about here. And that is what makes these, these words of his really quite startling, quite dramatic, and in some ways hard to listen to and hard to read. As we look more closely, and we will at, at this passage just now, I think there are three distinct lessons that are in this, three images, three pictures which are aspects, I think, about how we might follow Jesus. Three challenges about how we should be following Jesus. And in essence, it's a, a challenge and a call for all of us to turn our lives upside down and to be serious about following Jesus Christ. It's a radical call that Jesus is laying before us. And the first picture that we're going to look at is the lesson of the millstone. And it's in verse 42. We'll read verse 42 again. It says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they would be thrown into the sea. So when we're thinking about this large millstone, we're not thinking about some little thing you can hold in your hand and grind up a a, a few spices, but literally as the picture up there, as you can see, it's this large millstone that would be used on on an industrial basis where the mule or the donkey is tied up and it danders endlessly that circle, and then the millstone is this huge, big, heavy stone that, that, that the mule or the donkey is, is, is pushing and turning around. And it's that millstone that's in Jesus' mind, and it weighs tons. And the bottom line of the picture that Jesus has, he says, it would be better for anyone if they had this great big millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than to cause somebody else to stumble or to fall into sin. That's, again, hugely graphic. It would be better for you to die this horrendous death with this millstone tied around your neck than to cause someone else to sin. And it's an expression, as we begin to think through here, of the best way to love other people. And the best way to love other people is not to cause them to sin, but to cause them to follow Jesus more more deeply and more carefully. And God is concerned about people and he loves other, and he loves people. And he wants people to, to come to know him and to love him more fully. And then the expression of that for us is that we don't want people to fall into sin and to move away from God. And this the degree of this love and protection that God has for people comes out time and again in the, in the Bible. If I was to read, or if you were to read Psalm 105, in verse 10 of that psalm, it talks about the covenantal relationship that God has with his people and how God was bringing them into an inheritance, Canaan, and he was going to give this as, a, as a, an, an eternal uh, inheritance for the people of God and they were going to get this and it was this aspect of how I love my people but going down to verse 15 of that psalm God says don't touch my anointed ones 
do my prophets no harm. An expression of the commitment and the love that God has for his people, how God protects his people. You'll also be aware of that other little phrase that is used time and again in the scripture where God, speaking about his own children, calls them the apple of his eye. And the inference is that you're at the center of God's gaze. And don't dare poke my eye what God is saying. Don't poke me in the eye because I love these, these, these people. And that's an indication of the value that God has on individuals and how God wants you to protect other people because God loves them. And he doesn't want you to cause other people to fall into sin. And as I was thinking, how could we cause people to sin? We can do that in a whole host of ways, couldn't we? I mean, we could do it directly, where you actually say to someone, come with me, let's do this. Where you encourage someone else to do something that is clearly wrong and you know is clearly not in line with a godly or a holy lifestyle. But you can also do that indirectly, not by doing anything necessarily wrong, but it evokes a reaction from somebody else that is wrong. A good example of that, I think, is how parents deal with their kids. There's a verse in Ephesians 6, verse 14, which says, parents, do not provoke your kids to anger. Because sometimes your expectations, sometimes uh, just what, what you're saying to them or your attitudes of them evokes this negative reaction. So it may or may not be wrong what you are doing initially, but indirectly you are causing someone to sin. Or you may cause someone to sin because you are setting a bad example. People see you at work. People see you at home. They can see anger. They can see you being harsh. They can see you being abrasive. And so you're setting a bad example. But maybe even the other and the flip side of that is that you simply fail to set a good example. The encouragement from the Bible time and again is that we should actually spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So we want to encourage people to come closer to God and certainly not what this verse here is talking about, causing other people to stumble. Don't cause them to fall into sin. And the greatest expression of how we, we love other people is to show them how to come closer and closer to Jesus there's another verse in, my, in the course of my preparation that I was thinking about from 1 Peter chapter 4, which is telling us how we ought to love one another. And it says that we ought to love one another with a fervent love. And why that verse particularly resonated with me this week is because that word fervent can also be described as stretched so in other words, we are to love people with a stretched love. Now you'll know at the minute I'm doing my little physio exercises and Vanette's running about here somewhere, I'm doing that. And, uh, and that word stretched is talking about pushing your arm or pushing your, your leg or whatever it is to the very limits. And so that you are pushing it beyond what it, you feel is natural to do and that is God's command here as to how we really ought to love one another, encouraging one another, pushing one another on to love and good deeds. 
and certainly not doing what is suggested here about causing one another to stumble. That's what you don't want to do. So that's the lesson of the millstone. Then there's next little picture, and I haven't got a, a graphic image for this one, you'll be glad to know, uh, is, the, is the image of mutilation. I can only describe it as, but let's read it again. It's, it's verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with and to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Again, graphic, extreme behaviour, but what it is simply trying to get across to us is the seriousness with which we ought to deal with the sin that's in our lives. It, it mentions these body parts, it talks about our hands, it talks about our feet, it talks about our eyes, I think, simply as an all-encompassing way to describe everything about who we are, what we do, where we go, what we're doing. It's all our behaviours. And the other thing about it is when you read, it's actually written in the present tense, is how we deal with this, how we deal with the sin in our lives is not a once-off event. We, we recognise that when any one of us becomes a Christian, that we go to the Lord and we seek that forgiveness, but that's not the end of our struggle with sin because daily we struggle with sin and so daily we repent of our sin and daily we confess our sin and that struggle and how we deal with sin and temptation is, is an ongoing struggle. And so, as it were, daily we choose heaven or, or hell and we want to choose the eternal kingdom of God's salvation. And thinking about that word hell, that's mentioned here. The, the original Greek word is Gehenna, and that's a very particular word which is describing the lake of fire. Uh, there's another word for hell that's used in the Bible at times, which is the word Hades, which is simply referring to the place of the dead. But this one is the, the lake of fire, and the origin of that will go right back into the Old Testament. It's referenced in Joshua chapter 15. It's the, the valley of Hinnom, which is mentioned there, a steep a ravine, a valley at the bottom. It was a place where, where two bad kings of Israel uh, made human child sacrifices, which was a practice which was an abomination to, the, to God. It was denounced by the prophets. It was then the good king, Josiah, who stopped the practice and says this must never be done. And what he did to the valley of Ben-Hinnom was to make that into Jerusalem's rubbish dump, which was the place literally that was always smoldering with fire and the burning never went out. So that's the image that is now used for hell, this lake of fire, this place where the fire never goes out. It is the rubbish dump. And this is the strongest call, I think, in the Scriptures, not to go there. You either deal radically with sin or you end up in the rubbish dump, the rubbish pit, punished forever where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's 
the stark message of this picture of mutilation. The other picture, which is an easier one to get a picture of on the screen, is the image of salt. And that's in verse 50. Salt is good. But if, salt, if, if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Uh, we all know that the word is used here, that salt is good, and we can understand that. It's, it's favourable, it's, it's, it's beneficial. In a world when Jesus was saying these words, in a, in a world without refrigeration, it would have been so essential to use salt and to use salt well for preserving things. So salt is good unless it becomes salty. Now, in both of my congregations today, uh, in Ballanderry and here, there are chemistry teachers, so I'm being very particular about how I, I do this because uh, salt, sodium chloride, is a stable compound, so it can't become unsalty because it is what it is. And so what is Jesus actually getting at? What Jesus is getting at is going back to his day, as you might say there are different grades of it is that when it's dug out of the ground, a lot of the stuff in Jesus' day, in simple terms, would have been covered with a lot of muck. And so it was filled with gypsum, and maybe you could buy this stuff thinking it was, it was decent salt, but you suddenly realised that you'd got more muck than salt. And so that's the point of it. And so what Jesus is actually saying, and the challenge here is that salt is good as long as it is unmixed, as it's not full of other stuff. And so the challenge that Jesus presents to all of us is that we too should aim to be pure. We too should aim to be undiluted. We too should be unmixed. And that's a command and a challenge from Jesus. Now that's three very distinct images which have been presented. And I think each of them with a radical call to how we might live and honour God. But I'm going to try and put them together. And I think I can put them together. It's a, it's a strong call, a strong command from Jesus to live in a way that is radically different and it's all of life. So it's how we live honouring him out in the world. Jesus also speaks about salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. And you'll know in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the hope for the world. And then he changes his metaphor and he says, you are the light of the world. You don't light a candle and put it under a bowl. A city on, on a hill cannot be hidden. It's obvious it should be seen. And, and you don't try and do that in a way not to be seen, but you want to let your light shine before men so that they see your good deeds and they praise your Father in heaven. And so the encouragement from Jesus is to live in a way that is radically different, that your life may be turned upside down and that you would honour Jesus in a way that is costly. And then this is God's word to all of us as individuals. And it's a challenge to live in a way that is different with this motivation to honour Jesus. And it impacts what you do every day. And it is also Jesus' words to us as a church, that this is Jesus' encouragement to us in a church to live in a way that is different and, and to be radical about that. 
And certainly with this notion and the graphic language that is throughout these few words, that this is not ordinary. This is not run-of-the-mill stuff. This is not business as usual. This is costly. This is different. This is radical. It's a decisive step. It's a costly move. But this is what God, what Jesus is calling you to. And he's calling us as a church to live in this way. And as we listen to how the Spirit of God speaks to us from these words and how God speaks to our hearts and how we might respond to that, you know specifically what God is saying. And may you have the grace to do something about it. Let me just pause for a moment in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes when we read your word, it's warm and encouraging and lifts us up. But we also know there are those other moments when we read your word and it is deeply challenging. Lord, we, we recognize that what we've been reading today is difficult because it impacts what we actually do and it, and it causes us to, to make decisions and choices. Lord, we want to hear your word. We want to hear your truth. We want to live for you, even when it is difficult and it is costly. Lord, by your spirit, may you lay your word upon our hearts and give us grace and strength to be able to live for you as individuals, but even more importantly as a church and to know where you are leading us and what you are calling us to do and to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.